Welcome back to Fast Forward. We're at the end of another exciting week. Last night, we were delighted to join Becky Gibson from Tempt Marketing to celebrate the launch of her new business at Banyan Kitchen. She's one of the many startups that we work with. Uh, Her mentor, Charlie Wyman, who we had on the show here a few weeks ago as our LinkedIn expert, wasn't able to attend as she's expecting a little one. Good luck, Charlie. Um, But we were flying the flag for Tech Manchester along with Tanya Nickel from Trip T, who's also friends with Becky and all the gang from the NatWest Accelerator at Spinning Fields. If you want to catch that episode on LinkedIn, it's episode 25, and it's all about how to grow your network and to attract more customers. So have a look and tune into that. We wish Becky well, and we know she's an incredible leader with great vision. She'll be a smashing success. So on to today's hot topic. Nowadays, the majority of our interactions are made online, from business to shopping and pretty much everything in between. It's never been more critical to offer a seamless, frictionless digital experience. And in fact, we expect it. Good UX design can positively impact your bottom line. A recent study found that a well-designed interface can increase a website's conversion rate by up to 200%. So with figures like that, why wouldn't you invest in UX optimization? To tell us a bit more about that, we're welcoming today Melanie Denyer, a freelance UX analyst currently working at Redoute. La Redoute, yes. La Redoute. <laughs> uh, she's also, in her spare time, an award-winning baker and writing her first novel. And we'll find about all about all of that today over the course of the next hour. Um, so, Melanie, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Trish. So tell us a bit about you, Melanie. You've had a, a bit of a, a, a geographical journey. Um, you've recently moved back to Yorkshire uh, or you moved to Yorkshire uh, from London last year. Tell us a bit about the reason behind the move. The reason behind the move is that I was running a business. It all makes sense to me. And actually, yes, my CV probably looks like a bombsite. But ultimately, I suppose I've always been focused on creating great solutions for customers. And if you put the customer at the centre of the process, and if you actually look at my career in the light of that, then it actually all makes sense. Because I've gone from being a brand manager with L'Oreal after I graduated with my degree in modern languages, hence the Paris bit, yeah. all those years ago. To, Makes sense. <laughs> it does to me, yeah. I'll be honest, I'd fallen in love with a Frenchman and I followed him to France. So it was one of also those... Also a very good reason. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out with a Frenchman, but I did end up being bilingual and I had some fantastic experiences. And God knows, if you're going to learn marketing, learning it at L'Oreal is a great yeah. place to start. So after various marketing positions over the years, I found myself also positioned in London in 2000, right at the height of the first dot-com era. Mm -hmm. So having seen a number of things, working on internet banks, fund management sites, all kinds of interesting things, the South Bank Centre website, a whole load of really quite exciting projects. In fact, project managing my first website was actually in-house at Brands Hatch Leisure Group. Wow. Which was so fun because, of course, the office just overlooked the circuit and, (laughs) ah... It was quite hard to concentrate on occasion, but fantastic place to be. And so for me, I suppose my focus was always placing the user at the centre of it, because that in product management was what you were all about. It was finding a solution to a problem somebody had. Ideally, one they already knew they had, because then you come along and they're really happy. But sometimes it's about anticipating the problems that they might be having and getting ahead of the curve. Mm. For me, seeing digital technology taking off was hugely exciting because I started thinking, wow, there are going to be so many things that we can do with this and it's going to completely change our lives and the way we do things. And it's been wonderful to watch this over the years. 
In the meantime, however, first dot-com boom and bust. Eventually, I got made redundant, like most of us on agency side at one point Mm -hmm. or another. And I started working with my husband. We did all kinds of fun and interesting things. Again, finding solutions, but this time using actors who were resting between performance roles and needed interesting things to do to pay the rent. And so we did that for some time, and I would consult with companies like Tussauds, again, finding ways for them to better meet the needs of their customers. In an incredibly competitive and strapped Well, absolutely. Mm. It was competitive. And also their thing is that people tend to only go once every 25 odd years. Yeah. Because, of course, they go themselves with when they're kids. And then, of course, they go back with their own kids later. Yeah. But what they were finding is that as people are having children later, it meant that the interval between those visits was actually lengthening. And so visitor numbers were down. Where was that? Madame Tussauds in London. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So... What we also looked at was the competitive landscape at the time, which was very much, you know, Euro Disney was happening and people were expecting something more interactive. Yeah. And as fantastic as the wax portraits are at Tussauds, and they are quite something. <laughs> and if you've ever been behind the scenes at the studios, it's quite amazing to see how they create these things. Yeah. At the same time, they're not hugely interactive. And so people wander around and they might take selfies with their favourite ones or indeed at the time you would find that the staff would have to be wiping lipstick marks off Alan Titchmarsh's cheek <laughs> because that was little old ladies who were pottering around the place and would give a little kiss just to Alan idiot, Titchmarsh. Just the little old ladies. <laughs> yeah, well, the younger ones were usually making Linford Christie's running okay. suit a bit grubby in a certain <laughs> <Okay>. area. <laughs> it was wow. Absolutely. All the things you never thought you'd ever want to know about a wax portrait but found out along the way. So we helped them to create some nice interactive experiences Mm. to give people a chance to actually have a different experience of the exhibit. So we did things like actually creating a behind-the-scenes studio tour with actors who learned the techniques so that they could demonstrate them, keep up a line of patter with a line into the studio so they could be updated with gossip about who was coming through. Mm -hmm. Things like arguing over who was going to get the Prada shopping bag that had come with Tom Cruise's shoes, for example, when they did the latest portrait of him all kinds of things like that. But then we also did an interactive exhibit with Kylie. So we got one of her choreographers, actually, who choreographed at least, I think it was spinning around that he'd choreographed. Yeah. And we got him in to choreograph a routine that we could then teach kids who could get up on a podium with a camera on them and then they could be actually placed into a video with Kylie for Can't Get You Out of My Head. Amazing. It was so much fun. Is that still there? I'm going... (laughs) That one, sadly, no. It was one of those rolling ones Mm. that we did. And the idea was just to make sure that they were finding ways to get people engaged and talking and saying, oh, my God, you've got to do this. There's something new and it's going to be time limited. Yeah. Introducing some scarcity into a museum exhibit that otherwise didn't have any. Yeah. And that was quite important. So as things potted along, I ended up with a celiac diagnosis. And I very quickly got bored of how little food I could eat when I was out and about. Mm. Not least because by that point I had a toddler. Yeah. So you'd go for the standard kind of mother-parent meetings with the kiddies along. And I'd sit there and I'd watch everybody else tucking into a nice gooey chocolate cake and think, well, damn. You're in a rice cake. Uh, If that. So many places had nothing. Or if they did have something, it would be like sawdust. Yeah. My mum is a celiac and has been diagnosed for about 18 years. So I know what it was like at the start. Yeah. They kind of felt that you would be grateful for anything that was vaguely safe to eat without actually assuming that you still had kind of taste buds. Yeah, and and couldn't guarantee that it didn't have. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It was such a nightmare. Yeah. So I decided, well, to hell with this. How hard can it be? 
Mm. those immortal words. And so I started playing and using the actors in the rehearsal space that we were running at the time, along with the temp agency, as test subjects. And I would have a Friday test day where I would bake a bunch of cakes and the people who were on site at the time would be able to get a cake for free so long as they gave me some feedback. Mm -hmm. And we learned that actually, if you didn't tell people ahead of time that they were gluten-free, they couldn't tell the difference. And they were loving the cake. And so we eventually thought, well, fine. I know I'm not the only celiac in London, and I know there's a lot of people who aren't celiac but have some form of gluten intolerance. So to hell with it, let's open our own place. So we started up this place on Brick Lane. And over the years, therefore, we supplied nothing but gluten-free food. We did cakes, we did quiches, pasties, pies. And it's the pasties I actually won the prize for, Mm -hmm. which was a very proud moment because I was up against big national companies who have factories and scientists, Mm. and it was just me working in the kitchen, developing these things. But it was all built around the idea that customers may have intolerances, but they still want to be able to eat good food. It's back to user experience, isn't it? It really is, every single time. And so that was how I ended up running a coffee shop, because I wanted to have a better user experience when I went out out and ate. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't? Yeah. You don't feel great about spending five quid on a lump of cake if it's going to taste gross. So... As things happened, we ended up losing a couple of member staff to great reasons. One who had been with me because she wanted to be a photographer, but she needed work in the interim and she got her dream job. So that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And the other member of kitchen staff who ended up having to go back to Australia about nine months ahead of time. And that meant I had to step up in the kitchen. Trouble is, I've got fibromyalgia, I've got disc issues, and I've also got inflammatory arthritis, which meant that If it was just a question of keeping it going for a week or two, I could do that. But keeping it going any longer, I knew was going to hurt. Yeah. And it did. And we tried and tried to recruit people, but there just weren't the applications there. Purely because, I mean, we'd seen for a while that the number of CVs coming in was going down. But actually, when it came down to it, we just couldn't find anyone. And it was after I'd gone for another two, two and a half months of doing this and trying to run the kitchen entirely on my own. Mm pretty much working seven days a week to be able to meet production. It was hurting and I found myself with my leg collapsing out underneath me and I ended up on the kitchen floor in a little sobbing heap thinking, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I literally cannot do this anymore. And at that point, it was a big decision because we were going to be making ourselves homeless by closing the shop because we lived above it. Mm -hmm. A fantastic place to live and raise a child, central London on Brick Lane, but... We then had to think, well, fine, what are we going to do about this? And we knew we couldn't continue. So we also knew, frankly, that trying to stay in London and keeping our son at the same school meant probably paying two grand a month in rent. That, at least to start off with, while I was trying to recover physically, wasn't mm. wasn't really achievable. So we then had to look outside London and we looked in various areas. And my husband said, well, I grew up just outside of Grassington for a few years and it was lovely up there. What about going up there? And I looked around and I found a great school in Skipton that had a place if my son could pass the exams, Umstead's Grammar School, which is just a lovely, beautiful boys' school Mm -hmm. with proper playing fields, which he hadn't had in London, so he's happy. Oh, that's amazing. But that also meant that we had a catchment area then to say, fine, let's look for a house. Mm. And I think I did a trip up to Yorkshire just before Christmas in 2017, it must have been. And I saw on the one day the school... 
and on the next day, two houses. And we're now living in one of the two houses I saw because I fell in love with Yorkshire while I was up there. Amazing. I think everything happens for a reason, doesn't it? I think it does. And it's been a glorious place to just recoup. Mm. And having been a southerner all my life, as you can tell just from listening to me, then actually I'm a complete convert and love yeah. being in the north and in Yorkshire. And also, yeah, I've come down occasionally to Manchester for LinkedIn locals and things like that. And it's just That's such where a, we first met a few weeks ago, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> it's just such a friendly place. Yeah. And people are so supportive and positive. And there's this real buzz about the place that is lovely to see. I think around Old Street, it often feels quite jaded. And that's where we were. Mm. And I knew a number of people working in tech in that area. And also having worked in the West End in tech myself previous years, it always felt that bit jaded and stressed and so on. Whereas here, people are still passionate and excited and open to all of the opportunities. And it's just literally streets apart. I'd say you'll be getting a job as a <laughs> on a campaign <laughs> for Midas shortly. You never <laughs> <this> know. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, you're you're describing the living standards exodus. You know, last year was the first time that Manchester made a net gain from people leaving London and choosing Manchester as a destination. Yeah. So it's great to hear it firsthand about what uh, positive impact it's had in your life. Um, so let's get into the nitty gritty. Uh, we're here to talk about UX or UX. Um, you're the expert. Um, so let's start from the very top. What is UX? Okay, UX is user experience. And it's a tough one because there's lots of preconceptions about what UX actually is. And you will find people assuming that it's lots of designers sitting there with Photoshop making pretty pages <laughs> and, you know, choosing just the perfect font and the right colours. And is there going to be a curve there or a straight line or a right angle? All of those things. And... While that's part of it, it's not all of it. UX is essentially every touch point your customers or your stakeholders external to the business are likely to have with your company. And that can be something as simple or as complex indeed as a website or an app. But it also encompasses things like if you've got an automatic responder on the telephone with hideous, hideous menus trying to direct people without any options that actually sound like what they want, well, that's a great example of really bad UX that a lot of people could be doing better just as a starting point. So that covers it as well. So think about it. Any touch point people have with your organisation is part of your user experience globally. And while people mostly think about the digital one, the one that they can actually code, actually it goes much further than that. It goes beyond the simple digital and into the personal too. So it's one thing to have great digital UX which you may or may not have, but if you don't actually follow through with that in terms of how people interact with people outside the company, then at that point you're probably missing a trick. If you're making it hard for people to contact you, if you're making it difficult to actually reach a human being on the telephone, if you've got menus that are so specific that somebody calling in with a more general inquiry that desperately needs to talk to a human can't get through, then again you're missing a trick because that person, whether they're customer, potential employee, whatever, you're going to lose them from the process of contact. And that's a really sad place to be in. So it's like everything that possibly your customer might engage with you along the way. So it could be your weekly newsletter that you send out. It could be uh, an, a touchpoint email. It could be yeah. a phone call that you get from a, you know, from a sales sales team. Any, anything at all. Anything so at all. It's not just digital. It's why you need a strategy that encompasses all of these things. And why personally, I'm, I'm a huge fan of proofreading. 
because I get so many things that arrive in my inbox where if I actually click on them to read them, it's the stupid stuff like poor formatting or bad spelling and grammar, that kind of thing that really drive me nuts because yeah. actually I'm a certain generation where that stuff matters. I'm 47 years old. I got brought up believing that you should spell things correctly and that you should use appropriate grammar. So to me, it's actually really important that somebody who has copywritten something has cared enough to make it correct because otherwise it's just grating on me. Yeah. Whereas my 13-year-old son, he would be quite happy if you sent him an email full of text speak, actually, because yeah. he'd be able to understand it. It wouldn't take him very long to do it. And he would be, you know, completely at home with it because I've seen the kind of nonsense he sends me. <laughs> you know, we have obviously a digital chat and yeah. I see the things he's sending. It's just like, oh, dear God. And it's like, OK, you're 13 and I get this. But please, for pity's sake, I'm your yeah. mother. <laughs> yes, you know me. Exactly. Please spell the words. So as much as anything, it's about being appropriate to your audience. That's what I was going to say. It seems like you need to almost have in this era that we're in, that you need to have multiple user experience strategies for different generations. I think you potentially do. Or alternatively... Just understand that you've got to bring it into the largest category. Mm. So if you have a specific target and you know that these people are by and large going to be the only ones going for it, mm -hmm. well, then fine. It's great to target straight in on them. But if, on the other hand, you're an electricity company and you're going to have people from 18 up to 80 purchasing from you, well, then you have to understand that you've got to be able to create something that the 80-year-olds can use and you can't just focus on the fact that your 20 or 30 something designers have said, yeah. this will be fine, mate, because actually <laughs> it may well not be. There's a there's a obviously a, an, another conversation in there about having diverse thought, a range of experience yes. um, in there. But that's an entirely completely different podcast that we could spend all day talking about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I loved the podcast that you did on web accessibility oh, because yeah. that's such an important thing. And again, that is part of UX. If you've actually thought it through about how you can make all of the interactions work, actually what you'll find is the web accessibility often comes along as a natural corollary of that. Mm -hmm. you know, rather than trying to Focusing do something. Focusing on that, yeah. You don't always have to focus on it. I think it's good to have it. Yeah. You should have it in an ideal world. I understand when people say, but we need to be able to do this and this is not going to be accessible to a screen reader. And at that point, you need to make sure that you've got a clearly signposted way for people to do okay. that who can't use your interface. Yeah. But I it's think, all uh, about anticipating this stuff and working with it. Yeah. I think good UX design means that you don't have to think about different categories of people. It's it, You're thinking about everybody. Exactly. So let's talk about what a great user experience is. Like, what does what does a great user experience kind of look or feel like? A great user experience to me is one where I can quickly and easily achieve whatever goal I had in going to say, we're going to go back to websites and apps, and I think we'll mostly contain that within this area for now, because mm -hmm. otherwise we could be here for a week. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. On, on all the different touch points, yeah, again. Absolutely, but if we concentrate mostly on websites and apps, mm -hmm. then to me a great user experience is one that allows me to achieve my goals, my objectives, really quickly and easily from the start. So I can find what it is I was looking for. It's easy to be able to make the purchase. If the registration process is there, that it's not something that essentially wants my grandmother's birth date and mm. her star signs in order for me to be able to create an account to hell with that stuff. Yeah. 
and actually acknowledges that, yes, okay, you've got something I want potentially, but at the same time, that doesn't allow you to take the mick and really make me jump through hoops to get it because that's going to turn me off because almost certainly somebody else will be selling it. So to me, I suppose back in the day, back in 2000, we talked a lot about a three-click rule, which is that if you cannot find what you were looking for within three clicks from the home page, probably you need to rethink the structure of the data and your navigation and how you're actually presenting stuff on the site because people don't necessarily have patience, in particular mobile browsers, especially if they're, yeah, for argument's sake, on the tube in London, where you've got a very short browsing time in station mm. before you go back underground. Yeah. So people don't have time to spend a long time kind of clicking through to read things and have things load. You've got to think about how to make it as readily accessible as possible. And I see so many companies out there who do still, believe it or not, we're practically 20 years on now, and there are still people out there treating their websites as brochureware, and only wanting to put out there the things that they think they want to put out. And what they've not done at any point is go through from the perspective of who their potential users are and say, what do these people want? What are they looking for? And how are they finding it? And quite often you'll find somebody piping up at the back saying, but we just want them to be able to see this. And my response is usually, <laughs> your user doesn't care. Your user wants to find the information that they want to find. And just because you've not anticipated it in your brief doesn't mean that that isn't going to be something that they're looking for, expecting to find, and then getting annoyed when they don't find it. And it's about trying to find the intersection between what your needs are as a company in terms of getting the information and the product out there and the needs of the people coming to the site, whether they're your customers, your potential employees, your actual employees, or indeed trade clients and so on. How do they get to what they need as quickly as possible and as much as anything, it feels like a courtesy. Yeah. It is almost about good manners. You wouldn't meet somebody, go up and shake their hands, and then just go and talk to them about something completely unexpected and yeah. random, when actually what they really want to know is, where's the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> it's... True. And the same goes for a website. And every time, yeah. you know, if you are finding that people cannot find things easily, it means you've got a problem at its most basic level. The best ones, I've actually completed a purchase within two minutes. And so is that beginning what great, to end? So let's let's talk about examples of great UX in your experience. You must have been on like hundreds, if not thousands of websites and apps and, you know, across your career. So what does great UX look like or feel like to you? Like what are your sort of standards in terms of what when you're analysing and assessing? It's and gonna, can you give us some great examples? It's going to sound like a cop-out, but the great UX is very much conditional on what my need is because, obviously, it's down to whether people anticipated it. And I mean, one thing I use a lot, my HSBC personal banking app, and I've used a number of banking apps over the years, and the HSBC one used to be a complete and utter disaster and yet last year they launched a new one that is just so much better. It's a delight because I've got the fingerprint login. I can easily see what I need. I can very easily move the money around, create payees from, from the app finally. Whereas once upon a time they used to make you go to the website to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And if I want to be able to pay a bill or something like that, I think my record, because I have timed it, is 40 seconds from beginning to end of the process. As in, 
you know, firing up the app, logging in and actually doing the thing 40 seconds. And that's brilliant because that's how it should be. It was quick, easy. I completely achieved the objectives that I needed to. It's quite transactional, isn't it? There's no, you know, it's a bill, it needs paid. I just need to pay it. Exactly. And once upon a time, they'd have made you, if you hadn't paid the person before, go to the website and do all of that. Nobody's got time for this. And I don't expect that at all. Whereas my Lloyds Bank business app, on the other hand, no, they won't let me do that. I do have to create a payee online on their website. I can't do that in the app. And while they have now finally introduced fingerprint login, it took a very long time for them to reach that. And I always used to kind of have my heart sink because I knew it was going to be a pain in the bum. Mm. And it was a pain in the bum. And it was just nice to finally get at least that much done. So, yeah. no, there are some... It's much easier to point at the bad design. Yeah. And I I would like to say that there was more good design out there, but there's very little. And some of it is because we're getting much more complex. And I think in terms of the proposition, people are getting much more complex. Mm. If you look at a site like Laradoot, I'm going to talk about that since I'm working on it. Yeah. Well, specifically, I work on the French site, but... I'm sure it's absolutely amazing as a result. I have no doubt. <laughs> Um, I'd like to be able to say that it is. What I would say is that it's a work in progress. And the things that actually we focus on most, because we cannot control the fact that, I mean, France is way more complex than the UK in terms of an interface, because they've got a whole marketplace section. There's a lot more on the French site, naturally, than the UK one, because Laradute is French. But actually, how you present these things, you end up with a whole load of menus, product detail pages, product category pages. And we can make recommendations, but there comes a certain point where actually, I mean, to me, I rarely kind of scroll generally and browse through a website in that sense. I usually will be going straight to a search box. So at that point, it's how do you control your search results? More importantly, when someone has said, yeah, I want this, how do you actually make it easier? So we've been focusing an awful lot on the really, really key points registration, checkout, all of the friction points there, which actually cost you much more proportionally than them not being able to scroll faster down, you know, hundreds Mm. of pairs of jeans, which there may well be on the site because the range is that extensive. So if there's a tip there, it would be very much go straight to the checkout because if you're not getting your checkout right, then you're probably losing your customers there. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And for us, it's always a question of you you focus first on checkout and registration and then once you feel that actually you've done all that you can there at that point you can start looking at the other things and the other paths that the user is taking so for us looking at for example the returns interface how people are setting up wish lists what they can do with that is there something we can do more generally to improve the basket and how people are managing those functions also looking at how you can manage for example promo codes so For example, if you've got a promo code box in the basket and it's visible, people will then spend much more time going off on another tab to go and find a promo code, hoping that they can then get the discount. Whereas actually, if you put a little clickable text saying enter promo code, mostly that'll get ignored. So instead of spending lots of time wandering off trying to find a promo code and then getting quite perversely angry that you can't find a promo code and then abandoning the the basket in disgust... Actually, people think, no, I'm just going to get on with this. And that's it. They're through to the next stage. They've reached the point where they're looking at the delivery. 
then the payment, and then finally the confirmation. But actually, just having a promo code box can make such a difference. And Session Cam, who we've been working with, have got some wonderful insights on that. And actually, I would very strongly recommend anyone who's got a real budget to throw at this to really understand what's happening on their site. Look at Session Cam because it's got wonderful tools to use either for analysts that you have in house, or indeed, I know they've got a consultancy service. And some of their consultants, the insights that they can come up with just from that, Mm. it's a real eye opener and you can make some amazing improvements quite quickly just from getting them to take a look and give an audit of the site. So we'll be saving up these tips through the course of the podcast. So you've just touched on some really good um, examples of typical friction points on B2C sort of e-commerce on online retail experience. Um, What about uh, B2B more kind of... I guess I know you said about sort of brochure sites, but those ones which are more about sort of selling a, a company in terms of encouraging, you know, the, the the call to action is get an inquiry from your site. What about those types of sites? I think my biggest bugbear on those is always if you cannot find clear pricing, it really drives me nuts. And yes, Adobe, I'm looking at you. If you aren't prepared <laughs> to put clear pricing on your website, I'm not necessarily going to be particularly interested in you. While it's fair enough to say that Adobe probably only want the enterprise-level customers, a lot of the time, particularly for startups, how you get your enterprise-level customer is by having somebody who has started out using an entry level of suite where they can see the pricing clearly, they can actually put it in their budget, find the finance for it, and make sure that it gets allocated. If every single time you want to find a price, you've got to try and make contact through a form, wait for a salesman to get through to you, and then have them calling you up, chasing you up, Mm. and eventually you're just thinking, oh, for God's sake, I don't even want to take that call because, yes, okay, in the abstract you might want that product, but the prices that they're offering are not great and also you you just don't want the volume of calls coming in and the chasing. If you're running a small business in particular, quite often you're wearing several different hats and you don't have time for every salesman to be calling you up. And the number of times I, as a business owner, have found myself making inquiries and saying, I only want contact via email because I keep really weird hours. You know, I'm often up at three o'clock in the morning because, you know, well, I'm disabled. I end up in pain. So at three o'clock in the morning is quite often when I'm doing my emails. You know, It's just one of those things. But that means that I don't necessarily want somebody who's on the phone at me from nine o'clock in the morning or several somebodies if I'm comparing several different services. I want to be able to say, no, only contact by email. And you are going to have to trust that I will get back to you if it is what I want. Mm. But if you cannot communicate with me via the way I've chosen as a customer, and if you're not prepared to respect that I have chosen a certain means of contact as my preference and a certain frequency of contact and have said, absolutely do not call me. You know, when I was running the shop, it was quite often the case that in the morning, especially in the last couple of months, I would be up to my elbows in pastry or Mm. salad making or pasty fillings or whatever else. And quite literally, if somebody was calling me trying to sell me something, then it was uh, no, just no. I said, don't call me. Send me an email. I don't care. I want you to send me an email. Why are we still on the phone? (laughs) Exactly. Right now, I am trying trying to crimp a pasty. So if you don't mind, I'm not at all interested in talking to you. And if you're not prepared to accept this, well, then thank you, but don't contact me again. 
and they're saying there's no need to be rude. For God's sake, yeah. you're the one Being who's rude. ignored everything I have said. <laughs> yeah. That's rude to me, certainly mm. where I came from. And I think we do need to take that on board if we're providing a service B2B that actually our customers aren't always trying to dodge the salesman. Sometimes they are actually saying legitimately, I know what my workflow is, yeah. I know my peak times, and I can't leave that in the hands of a salesperson to be calling me right, left and centre to chase me. Because actually, A, that'll piss me off. And B, to be brutally honest, I know better about managing my time than they do. Mm. Because it's my time and my schedule and my set of priorities. You know, I've got people who will contact me because they're trying to sell me something. And I'll say, I can't look at this until, say, July, August, because I happen to know what the business priorities are. Mm. But in July, August, let's talk again. And then you'll get a phone call and you're coming to month end. So you know that they're under pressure. Yeah. And they're still trying to chase you to buy something or to make a purchase decision. I'm saying, you know that bit where I said July, August, September? Yeah, still July, August, September. So can mm. we take this back a few months? And <laughs> it's, It and sounds like it's time to hyper-personalise the UX I process. Think, Businesses need to change the way they're doing things. They can't have their way of doing things. They need to, to yeah. be the, each, like the hyper-personal customer's way of, of doing things. I think also transparency is the key thing here. Every kind of bad UX example that we've been talking about in many respects is down to transparency. It's this lack of willingness to show what you've got. Mm. I'm quite sure that if Google want to know the price of Adobe Analytics exec executive and enterprise editions, yeah. they've got somebody who can find that out and vice versa. So why on earth are you hiding your pricing? Yeah. What are you ashamed of? What are you trying to hide? And why can you not just show that to the public? Because the public clearly want it. Yeah, we're in a glass box era. I know we're actually sitting in a glass box right now, but we literally we are. are, <laughs> we <yes>. literally are. <laughs> so what are the methods? Um, you know, let's move on to how um, startups and founders could could start looking at these types of things. What are the methods for um, UX process? I think as a starting point, work out not just who you would like your customer to be, because I think quite often you go into things thinking, well, I would like my customers to be these people, quite often people who are very like me, mm -hmm. you know, because... That's how we all think. It's quite often how a business idea starts. Yep. Frustration with something, discovery that there is no obvious solution to it and a determination to provide that solution. And I think it's quite often a fallacy to think, therefore, that everyone who has that problem looks exactly like us and has, in that sense, a whole set of behaviours that mimic us. So, for example, if you're very tech literate and have been surfing websites practically since you were three when you got your first hands on an iPad, well, OK, great, but that's not everybody. And actually, ability to use websites and apps varies by age, by ability. There's so many things. And we make assumptions when we're putting a site together. And I'm as guilty of this as the next person thinking, well, that form's not that hard. All you've got to do is tab down the fields, hit submit at the end and everyone's cool. Yeah. So if you look at the session recordings from something like Session Cam or Hotjar, and then you suddenly see that all of your assumptions have fallen by the wayside as somebody sits there on your site and they're going, Ping, 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 and they're getting nowhere. And it's maybe because the error message is in the wrong place and they've missed a field or it's not been clear that something was actually a compulsory field 
Oh, there's, oh. there's that's nothing more annoying when you're hitting submit and it's sitting there and you're like, why is it still sitting there? Well, yes, and part of that actually, I'm going to be completely heretical here and say that sometimes it's because people get too hung up on Jakob Nielsen. And Jakob Nielsen was... Ah, you've not heard of him. Right. Mm. Okay, Jakob Nielsen is in some respects considered, I suppose, the grandfather of usability. Okay. And way back in the late 90s, he was writing Usebox, which was a kind of blog about usability and how to improve what we were still calling at the time HCI, human-computer interaction. Mm -hmm. And that's what we now know as UX. Okay. And he would come up with principles and he was quite dogmatic about it. And designers would pretty much worship at the altar of Jakob Nielsen if they thought they knew anything about usability. And in later times, obviously, he's gone on and he's developed a certain number of principles and things like that that you should try and do. And they're great. And I would strongly recommend, actually, if you design websites or indeed if you're a product owner, read. Read what he's got to say, but then think about how that's going to work for you. Because there are some times that you'll actually see a form and I'll sit there with a little grin on my face because I know exactly where the designer has come from when they were trying to do this. But the fact is that they have chosen some principles over other principles or they've tried to include all of the principles and it's all come crashing down about their ears and it's a disaster. So, for example, you can find that one of the principles is wherever possible and wherever it's actually viable and effective, use inline validation rather than waiting until the submission of the form to be able to validate. And that's fine. But there are times where actually in practice, somebody has clicked into a field and then it's kind of ooh, squirrel and there's something at the top of the page that they're going to look at. And so they'll kind of scroll off elsewhere. <laughs> in the meantime, the page detected that they have had the temerity to scroll off again and is now throwing an error saying, please enter your name. <laughs> a nice bright red error that's really quite offensive. It makes it look like they've created a mistake. Yeah. And actually, no, they haven't. What they've done is simply get distracted. So that tells you two things. One is that you need to remove the distraction from that part get of the process. Of the exactly. No shoot, squirrels. Shoot the squirrels. Definitely shoot the squirrels. <laughs> okay, well, let, we're not going to shoot the squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not shooting squirrels. We can shoot our digital ones we're because that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be anything that's wrong. But, so for one, yes, get shot of those. Yeah. Two, think about how somebody is going to feel about that interaction, because the more red text and red outlines mm. you're going to throw at them, the more it's actually going to impact on them. Yeah. And it seems silly, but people then start feeling attacked. And the mm -hmm. more of those things they see as they go down the form, because you're validating in line, but you're doing so inappropriately, because actually the person isn't technically in error yet. They haven't actually tried to get, get away yeah. with... It's really difficult and you've got to find that balance. But, for example, if you know a bit more about your customer's demographics, so say, for example, you've got an older demographic and you can often tell that looking at the recordings because particularly on a reg form, if there's date of birth, then you can see the date of birth being entered and you think, well, that explains everything because you've got somebody who lives in a rural location, say, in France, who is 70, 75 years old and they're struggling through a reg form. But yes, the 20-year-old who put it together yeah. probably thinks is absolutely fine. And the marketing department have dictated that they want to see, you know, this or that or the other information because they want to gather all of the data because this is hugely helpful for them to design their campaigns. Whereas actually there's the poor customer 
who every single time they've got to complete a form is going to struggle, either because they don't actually know that you can tab. They've never heard of the tab key and what it can do. So they're having to painstakingly scroll and click in the right place. Or worse still, they're sitting there on their mobile trying to complete this form. And I'm sorry, I am very tech literate, but I struggle also to be able to complete forms on my phone, even though it's a decent sized screen, because the keyboard, the keys are always too small. Yeah. And actually doing things accurately is difficult. You know, one of the most obvious things that catches people out is the password confirmation field. Why do we still have password confirmation fields? (laughs) It's a big bugbear of mine. And particularly on mobile, why do we have a confirmation field? Because, well, two things. Trying to actually type the same exact password that fits all of the requirements twice in a row is actually harder than you might think and gets harder as you get older. Where, for example, if you've got arthritis, you might have intentional tremors, so you can't Mm -hmm. reliably hit the right point on the screen. But also, it's unnecessary because whether you're Apple or Android... It saves it now. It does. And your keychain. It'll save it, or it'll even actually be very helpful and suggest Suggest a strong password. And my God, that's a sensible thing to do. When you hear about any kind of data breach, why are you not using the suggest a strong password thing? Mm so that you don't have to worry about the fact that you use the same yeah. password for everything, even you though you know you it. shouldn't. You can doesn't reset matter. it, and it's saved, and it doesn't matter. You don't even have to remember a thing. And it also means that if you then get the notification that your data has turned up on this or that or the other site, you don't have to worry because you know you've got a completely different, yeah. unhackable password for each site. You don't need to confirm a password because the computer does all of oh, this for fine. you. Mm. And... I've seen people spend four or five minutes at a time just trying to get two passwords the same. <laughs> I, I put my hand up. Yeah, and you have to be really seriously dedicated to want to then stick with a purchase if it's taking you five minutes to create a sodding password yeah. before you've got anywhere close to the checkout. It's It makes no sense. It really does. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure if that annoys you or not. I will come back. <laughs> no, you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we'll end up with uh, with Melanie's five big bovers. But um, listen, so let's let's move on. So, how can we test for these things? What is tell us a bit about UX um, or interface um, testing and how important is yeah. it? I think one of the biggest criticisms of use testing is that it's expensive, and that certainly used to be the case back in two thousand. Then use testing was obviously going to require a special studio. It was going to require camera setups, eyeball tracking, a whole load of different things. And it cost thousands and thousands and thousands. And it was always very good quality use testing in that regard because you had proper qualified data scientists and HCI experts who were watching people use it and so on and creating the appropriate scenarios. And yeah, that's probably not affordable to most startups when they're still getting their concept out there and all the rest of it. And while you may eventually want to do something with it, there are other things you can do. For starters, even back then in 2000, there was a piece of research that said that actually by the end of the sixth user, you'd already got most of the big gotchas sorted. Mm -hmm. So if you set up a set of goals and said, right, can you please complete the following on this site? then by the time you'd got feedback from six people, you'd picked up the worst of the really big problems. Mm. So anyone can do that. If you've already got a wireframe for the site that you're going to be working on or the app that you're working on, there is no harm in getting a few friends and family, giving them some tasks, asking them for some feedback on that, 
so that they can give you that. And that's at a very basic level. It's cheap. You can also set up your own basic studio just by getting one of your members of staff, preferably a designer, for example, to actually sit with a bunch of people. You can easily ask a research agency to find you respondents or indeed just put a call out. There are various different sites that you can call on for this where people are quite happy to come in for a few quid and give you some feedback on something. Stick a camera, point it at the person because then you can get a rough idea of where it is they're looking at. Get a Use screen capture software so that you can actually see what's going on on the screen and look at it. And we've mentioned a few of those um, earlier. Hotjar is the free one, is it? Uh, if you actually want to do session recording of a live site, then yes, Hotjar is a free has a free level. Yeah, It doesn't get you that many sessions per month, but it's enough for you to at least get a good level of feedback. Session Cam has a much more developed proposition that includes struggle scores and a breakdown of what that struggle score actually comprises, mm. which is really handy to see whether it's the fact that somebody's clearly scrolling all over the place without a clue or whether they're struggling on a form field or something like that. You've got various other things that will bolt into those like Usabilla who will actually do things that are triggered. So if somebody has a particular event, so they've been scrolling up and down and then, for example, the mouse is moving to the top right hand corner X, then actually it can trigger a little pop up box saying, hello, did you not find what you were looking for? Can you give us some feedback? And there's various different events Mm. that you can use to trigger an inquiry. And you can then get direct feedback feedback from the customer And also offer then, if they've struggled to find something, do they want contact? Can you get somebody to get in touch with them to help them with what they wanted? And it's a great way of actually making people feel that you care. The important thing, obviously, is to make sure that you do have a team behind that who are going through and making sure that they act upon the data that they gather. That's really vital. And so while you might start out with a basic kind of you know, almost do this in your basement level of testing and you can do so, then actually starting to budget in for other tools that you can use once you're live and actually building that into the process of how you iterate and create a better interface, that's actually quite important. And I think if you're going to be at the point where you're putting in, you know, funding requests, seeking first, second, third round, actually making sure that you've got a budget for this is really vital because that's also going to give you an edge on the competition if you've already got an interface that you are continually looking at and improving Mm. and keeping abreast of all of the potential changes. So much has changed in the last five years alone, let alone the last 20. Mm. It makes sense to try and keep on top of these things. You know, as mobile technology develops, wearables and things like that. And expectations evolve as well. Totally. You can't just say, well, this is my site for the next two years and not come back to it or just plan that you're going to do a revamp in 18 months time. You really do have to be on it and learning about your people. So use your analytics suite, whichever one you're using, you know, use it, learn about your demographic. Are there anything, is there anything specific to your demographic that makes it more or less difficult for them to use the interface that you have got? Mm -hmm. If you are primarily targeting people who are in their sixties and their seventies, while you don't have to go kind of Janet and John does web design and create massive, great, huge buttons and all the rest of it, <laughs> actually thinking about how much you want to gather from them so that you keep their inputs minimal mm. so that you only actually ask them to jump through the hoops when it's strictly necessary and not just because your marketing team is determined to get hold of a date of birth 
you know, addresses, <laughs> telephone numbers and about yeah, three different emails. So they get retargeted. Yeah. There's so many other ways that that is done Absolutely. for you now. They don't need to gather that. So what are the benefits of, of Goody? Like what, is the, like what is the outcome that entrepreneurs can expect when they invest in both the design and also the testing to em- embark on this continual iteration that they need to go on? For one thing, if you've actually got something going on in the way of session monitoring and session recording, then the obvious thing is that people like me pick up bugs because we will actually see... If, you, if you're on session cam, there are actual error reports. So you can take a look at those specifically and say, ah, oops, we've got a problem here. Or, you know, you might see that there are there is a particular drop off. In particular, if you've got a team working on analytics and a team working on the UX analysis, actually with the people in analytics saying, we've got an awful lot of page exits on this page. Can you take a look? Actually, we can go in, take a look and see what is actually happening And it means that if you've got a bug somewhere in the code, and it does happen with the best will in the world because we're human, but if you've got an error in the code and it's actually sending people away from the site, you need to know that and you can fix it. In the same way, it may be that you've got a problem with a particular form or that the address format is wrong and so on. Mm. And what what my job is, is to try and help you guys reduce friction. So quite literally make it as easy as possible for that person to complete... You know, in the case of something like Laradoot, it's how do we get them to the point where they've managed to hand over their hard-earned cash Mm. and purchase whatever they wanted on the site. And we have to get them through the site from registration through to the end of checkout and make them feel comfortable and happy so that they don't abandon the basket along the way. Yeah. And And importantly, come back. Come back. Absolutely. It may be that sometimes you're the only retailer that they actually trust to deliver it. And actually, if you've got a long history of bricks and mortar trading before you go into online commerce. Well, okay, you can trade on that a little. But ultimately, we have made changes that include, for example, removing the password confirmation, Mm -hmm. which is great. We're so happy about that when that happened because, you know, you sit there and watch it and it's one of the biggest frustrations ever seeing something and wanting to change it. But also things like consider a guest checkout. It may seem really obvious and the marketing team may be saying, no, 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 what are you talking about? Mm. Well, actually, if you have people and you're forcing them through a long registration form and they have a chance to get frustrated with the registration form, they A, may not complete the registration form. B, if they don't complete it, then they're definitely not buying from you. Whereas actually, if you give people a chance to go through, make it easy for them to make the purchase and then say, would you like to register so that for the future you mm. don't have to fill all that in. People have just had a nice positive experience. It's been really easy to buy something. They're much more likely to register at that point. Yeah. And then they don't mind spending a couple of minutes doing it with the advantage that you've already supplied in the process, your address and your telephone number and your email address. So those three points of friction are already gone. They can be pre-filled into any registration form. Yeah along with the name. And after that, well, there's very little that you actually need to capture. You may want to create a password, but hey, that's nice and easy because Google or Safari can recommend one for you. <laughs> so, it's... so um, 
I mean, there's so much. There's so much yes. in this. I think we could sit here all day, we really Melanie, could. talking about it. I'm fascinated uh, about it, and I think it's all about human behaviour. And it sounds like it's about giving control back to the the user and the consumer for them to make those proactive choices. So businesses have to step up their game and continually evolve to be able to do that. Um, but if you were going to give some sort of key top tips to wrap up today's conversation, uh, what would they be? Um, to, for people to start employing uh, and, and having a go at today? Okay, top tips I would say, get your checkout right. That's absolutely the basics. Get your checkout right. Do not make it hard for people to buy things. And that should be obvious, but there's enough sites out there not doing that that actually know. Mm. Clearly that needs some work. If you are selling a service and you have different pricing tiers for numbers of users or whatever else, for God's sake, be transparent about it. People aren't necessarily going to be put off by the price. The only people who are going to be put off by the price are those people who couldn't afford it anyway. It's a simple truth. So if your price is legitimately going to be that price and you don't have the wiggle room to negotiate on it, be transparent, be open, be Mm. clear. People may say, well, that looks like a great tool for me in the future, but I'm going to have to budget for it and move on to that when I'm big enough to justify it. In the meantime, yes, I'll go with this smaller entry-level tool, but at least then it, A, saves time for your salespeople who don't then have to try and convert people who are never in a million years going to buy your product because Mm -hmm. they won't buy it at that price level. But it also shows that you have an open approach to these things. What have you got to hide if you're not showing your price? We shouldn't have anything much to hide beyond anything that's obvious IP that is proprietary and is essentially our core. Anything like pricing or procedures and processes Mm. that you're going to be learning as a client, well, that should all be clear and current. It shouldn't need to be hidden behind some kind of a paywall or indeed behind a salesman who's going to then pester somebody when they're up to their elbows in pastry, Mm. for example. (laughs) (laughs) You know, also think about... I used to get approached a lot by startups in London, particularly those who were saying, we've got this great new app. It allows people to order a coffee on the app and send an order to you. And then you just queue the coffees up on the counter waiting for the customer to turn up. Isn't that a fantastic idea? And I would say as the coffee shop owner that, well, okay, but no. And why? Because that actually doesn't understand my workflow as a business or the fact that my baristas, if they are in the middle of a 10 o'clock rush and there's a, there's a rehearsal that's broken out at the rag factory down mm. the road, for example, and you've got 25 actors all turning up for coffee and cake at that point, no, I don't really want somebody coming along on an app, placing the order and getting stroppy about the fact that it's not there when they demand it. Mm. And ultimately, particularly for something like hospitality, where it's not just about the consumable, you've got a person behind the counter. Mm-hmm. And particularly for a smaller local business, actually, they make their money by being decent human beings, giving great service and making sure that they craft the coffee that you want. It's the so human contact. It can be. So understand the businesses that you're trying to sell to. Understand whether or not actually your great idea as a consumer is going to be something that a business can or will buy yeah. into. It has to be great for the consumer and the business. It does. And so much of it was going to be great for the consumer and a complete nightmare for me as a small business owner to, de- to actually deliver on. Mm. So think about that. And rather than falling back on, but the consumer is going to love it, also think there are users at both ends of 
service mm-hmm. and it's got to work for both. So I think also think about the internal stakeholders as well as the external ones. Yes, of course, customer service is important. Customers getting their product quickly is important. But it's also got to be something that people internally can buy into and actually freely say, yes, this is great. This makes my life easier and better as well. And I want to use it because otherwise the service is destined to fail. Mm -hmm. So think about the stakeholders on both ends as you design your user experience because both have an experience of it. And it's not enough sometimes when you're selling this in to be able to just say, but think of the customers because you won't get anywhere if you haven't thought of the staff. So, oh dear, I mean, there's probably plenty more, but... (laughs) I think those are are great tips and and thought-provoking things for um, anyone that's building those products and services out there to think about when they're building those new platforms, making sure that you're thinking about all your users and your customers throughout the entire journey and hyper-personalising it to them. Um, We hope that's answered some of your user design and UX questions um, that have been stressing you out. Uh, hopefully that will help, um, you know, bridge the gap between some of those vital uh, sales that you may be seeing if you're on e-commerce platforms or inquiries if you're on B2B. Um, so hopefully for now, that will give you a better night and well-designed night's sleep. Thank you. Thanks. Present like the fear from